A new year is full of surprises, but one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take care of orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I hadn't really thought about being a female chef at all in my career. It just was about being the best that I could. So I was singled out. And then I thought, you know, what if I'm the first woman to lose the third star and also maybe prove everyone that maybe women aren't strong enough. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. Welcome to Imposters, a podcast from The Telegraph. Have you ever had that creeping feeling that you don't belong somewhere or that you don't deserve your success, even though you know deep down that's not true? Yeah, me too. I'm Claire Cohen, The Telegraph's women's editor and co-founder of our Women Mean Business initiative. In this podcast, we square up to imposter syndrome and demand to know what its deal is. In each episode, I talk to a woman who is out there carving a successful career in a challenging industry whether that's food or film, fashion, or even flying to the moon. I want to know if they've ever experienced imposter syndrome. If so, what convinced them to keep going anyway? If not, what's their secret? So without further ado, let's meet this week's imposter. My guest today is a woman who has spent most of her life in the kitchen. Her career has seen her work with the likes of Alan Ducasse, Gordon Ramsay and Heston Blumenthal. Now, as the first female UK chef to be awarded three Michelin stars for her own restaurant, Core, which she only opened four years ago, she's essentially won the Olympic gold medal of her industry, something she first dreamt of as a teenager working in a local restaurant in County Antrim. I, for one, can't wait to hear how she did it. So welcome to Imposters, Claire Smith. Hi, thank you. So three Michelin stars... You've done it now, right? You can take your foot completely off the gas. Absolutely not. Um, the pressure really starts now, believe it or not. The expectation of every customer goes up with three Michelin stars and they must be maintained every year. So every day, every dish, people are expecting three Michelin star standard um, and it's got to be delivered with, without fault. And those stars will be awarded every year and there will be multiple inspections by Michelin inspectors throughout the year, up to six times a year for three Michelin starred restaurants. We don't know when they're coming in. They book under false names and they leave and we don't know if they've been or not. Um, so the pressure absolutely starts here. But it's it's something that I'm very familiar with. 
in my past, um, having worked in three Michelin starred restaurants, having headed one up for, for eight years myself previously, I know what it takes. I should say probably that we're speaking during the third national lockdown. So restaurants aren't currently open. But when they are, are you looking at every customer thinking, could they be a Michelin inspector? Yes, absolutely. But, you know, ultimately, I'm looking at every customer to be an individual yeah, and to try and exceed that individual's expectations. And every single person is different. Uh, you know, sometimes it might be, you know, a young person that's never been to a, a Michelin-starred restaurant before or an elderly person that could be eating in, in fine dining restaurants their whole lives. And it doesn't matter their backgrounds, where they've been from. We need to tailor every guest's experience. And that's what we aim to do. So we were in lockdown when you were awarded your third star in January 2021. What was that like? Presumably there wasn't a big ceremony as per usual. Yeah, I mean, it was it was strange. To be honest, it, it's kind of like I, I it was a dream for me to win three stars. And I always imagined that if we did achieve that level, we would have a massive party. And of course, we just didn't. Um, we had pizza, a glass of champagne, and then we were in bed before midnight. So um, I was lucky I had a couple of my team members working with me because we're doing a, a core at home delivery service, but the rest of the team were on Zoom call. Um, and we just have to sit and wait patiently before we can celebrate or, or actually get back to cooking because our customers, um, they've been with us and so loyal with our regulars. Um, I know they're desperate to celebrate with us as well. I feel really sad that you only had one glass of champagne. <laughs> yeah, the many more will come. But. <laughs> so let's rewind a bit to the teenage Claire Smith, who grew up in Northern Ireland. And I mean, your background is frequently described as humble in interviews. And then at 16, you leave home. What led to that decision? Um, I, I just was so focused on being a chef. And I wanted to be a chef at very top level. I wanted to work in London because I knew that's where all the best restaurants were. And there was very little in Northern Ireland at that time. And still now, it's still a, not very many fine dining restaurants. So I was quite headstrong when I was young. Um, and I guess most teenagers are and, and a bit naive sometimes as well to the world. So very, as very headstrong me went and found myself um, an apprenticeship and, and a college course uh, that I wanted to be in, which was in Portsmouth. Um, and just got to work, really. You know, being a chef, uh, being British and particularly, I think it's quite an interesting you say about that humble background. Um, you know, I'm the fourth uh, British chef to win three Michelin stars. And it's very unlike France, where they grew up with a culture of food and fine dining. We don't in the UK. And typically the British chefs have won three Michelin stars, just come from very humble backgrounds um, and didn't grow up with dining in fine dining restaurants. We do it more through hard work. It's a, it's a very different thing. So I was particularly proud as a British chef to win three Michelin stars, knowing that we don't have that part of our culture or our families. We didn't grow up with it. A lot of French families, um, you know, their parents owned restaurants, their grandparents owned restaurants. We don't grow up with that in Britain in the same way. You mentioned that you felt perhaps a touch naive being so headstrong and having that self-belief at that young age. How did that naivety play out? I think just not knowing what the wider world was was like. Um, you know, it was, yeah, my first time into, you know, the big wild world and and the dangers of it and, and you know, the expense of living in a big wild world, you know, and getting a, an apartment in London for the first time when I was 17 years old um, and just 
I was—I guess I was lucky. Always had good people around me. I always had good bosses. But when I look back on it now, I do, do think at 16 years old was very young to leave home. And I do think now, wow, you know, when I see 16-year-old kids, I think you know they are very young. <laughs> um, but I was just so determined and headstrong to do it. What did your parents make of it? They were um, concerned. Obviously, I think um, they were more worldly than me at 16 years old um, and they wanted me to go home. But, you know, I was such a headstrong kid and I had already got myself into a college and apprenticeship. I went on holiday to see my friends. um, And whilst I was on holiday in England, I I went to visit a college and uh, and got my apprenticeship and then called them and said, actually, you know, I'm going to stay. I'm, I've got an apprenticeship and I've also got a job. <laughs> so I got myself a job as well, um, which, was, which wasn't me staying really. That's pretty bold. And not that's, to have that much self-belief as a 16-year-old, I think, where do you think that came from? Um, I don't know. You know, I was working in local restaurants um, from the age of 12 in my school holidays uh, and I absolutely loved it. And I was quite independent and I had saved a lot of money. I'd saved my my money had nothing to spend it on and I also was quite competitive I used to ride horses and compete against my big brother um and so yeah I just I just cracked on with it and was quite responsible um I ended up one of the restaurants when I was 15 years old actually cooking in the restaurant when the head chef wasn't there and I was able to to do it and I was reading constantly about chefs and restaurants and learning as much as I could I, I was obsessed by it from a very young age, like um, people are obsessed by pop stars and, and and sports, food was like that for me. So my knowledge by the age of 16 was was quite great. So listeners will be able to hear that you're not speaking with a Northern Irish accent. What happened? Pretty quickly after I, I left home, uh, I lost my accent. As quick as two weeks, probably. Wow. <laughs> I remember my mum phoning me and, and, you know, she's just like, you've lost your accent completely. I don't know if it was part on purpose or um, of trying to fit in. I think when you're a 16 year old with a thick Northern Irish accent and you just want to fit into the kitchen and, and your your work, it's probably a part of it was maybe on purpose. But I guess it was at that age where where it was still possible to lose my accent. Well, that leads us into the topic of our chat quite nicely, which is imposter syndrome. That feeling that you aren't supposed to be somewhere or that you don't deserve your success sometimes. Is that something you felt yourself? I, I think so. I think there are definite points in time where I think that I I don't deserve my success. I, I do think there are times where I think that um, maybe I'm not as good as, as the other people think I am, or maybe that I'm maybe lucky in a way. It, it, there is definitely points in time where I think that I have to do more work to 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 make sure that I am good enough or that I do live up to my reputation. Are there any specific triggers for those thoughts? I, I don't know. I think they're um they happen on and off. I, I I'm someone that has to put on in a lot of work um to prove to myself that I'm I'm good enough. I make sure that and that also gives me comfort. Like I find it a lot less stressful if I just do my research um, and I put the work in so I know 100% what I'm doing. So I'll always kind of fall back on my training. So I think doing the work and 
knowing that you have the knowledge is really, really important. And also just telling yourself, like back, backing yourself. I've had many um, situations where, for example, one of the big things for us food critics, for example, will say things about you. I'm quite hurtful and it's very personal for me. But I'll tell my, you know, I'll go back over it and I'll just look at my experience and my success and what I've achieved and then be like, you know, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. I feed 500 people a week. I've been doing it for 20 years. I've held three Michelin stars for, for eight years. I've been working at three Michelin star level for 15 years. And I look at all my successes and I think, you know what, I do know what I'm doing. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know better than them. And so I do have to just remind myself sometimes that whilst I think sometimes, yes, success is lucky, it isn't when it's just when you really think about it and just add it up. You know, core's been fully booked since since the day it opened. Um, you know, we achieved first restaurant in history to enter the Good Food Guide with 10 out of 10. Um, we achieved five a rosette straight away. Um, you know, I've been given an MBE, a doctorate. I've done all these things that I've been given in my career. You know, it's kind of sometimes you have to remind yourself, yes, I do know what I'm doing. There will always be critics out there. There'll always be that. Um, but I think falling back on your own experience. Like I remember a headline in a newspaper when we opened that said, just when I thought restaurants couldn't get any more ridiculous call by Claire Smith opens. And that was my first headline. And actually, it was completely unfair. The food critic hadn't even eaten at core. Of course, I spoke to Gordon about it straight away. He said, sue them. <laughs> but it's the kind of thing that at the top level you're going to get. People are out to get you. And that person was waiting outside core to eat on our opening night and didn't have a booking. And it was actually her husband. And I, I fed him some food at the bar. And and person really was completely against fine dining um, and we're just out to, to be nasty. But at top level, you're always going to get critics. And, and it's hard for chefs when it becomes so public. I think it's important to just tell yourself every now and then, yep, I do know what I'm doing and, and keep moving forward and not let it affect. Because I think factoring in, there's always going to be a certain amount of criticism is quite an important thing to know and just accept. You clearly ruminate on these reviews though or remember exactly what people have written about you are you ever tempted not to read them um no I think it's important to read them I remember every single word <laughs> I can tell you that sometimes for days like it's really like it really knocks me but I think it's also part of my driving force it's all important sometimes there may be things in it that are negative that you don't want to hear that that's correct um so I think it's important to read it everything but I, I you know I've had criticism for example like somebody doesn't like our signature dish the potato and roe you know just doesn't doesn't like it thinks it's ridiculous but I'll have sold 10,000 of them and everyone absolutely loves it now it's not my signature dish because I say it is it's because of popularity of our customers and guests so it's like you've got to weigh it up I guess it's like I, if you took a view of if you were selling a cars and you looked at your customer reviews, you would want 99.9%, wouldn't you? You wouldn't listen to the 1.01%. So I try to look at it like that in business terms. And obviously, if that percentage is higher, really look at it. But you're always, you're never going to please absolutely everyone. But the negative will always weigh much harder on you than, than positives. 
Now, you mentioned Gordon Ramsay before. And the list of male chefs who you've worked under is impressive. I didn't touch on half of them in my intro. Do you ever flinch and sort of feel tired of your career being defined by the men you've worked under? Not really. I, I, I learned a great deal for them. Um, I feel I owe them a lot. I, I loved every day that I spent in their kitchens. And I think that there's a respect thing there that if someone's taught you a lot, then you go on to be a success. And I know they're incredibly proud of, of what I've achieved. And that thing about the pupil uh, always surpassing the master, I don't know if that's going to happen yet, but I think that it, they're proud that that I've taken what they've taught me and, and carried on. And, and I think that's an important legacy of, of what they've, the, the restaurants they've built. Yeah, I, I have a big um, respect for, for the hospitality community in that way and how we must always train the next generation. It's really important. So you started work for Gordon Ramsay in 2002 and you were still very young, although you had already worked in a number of influential kitchens by that point. But what's that like, walking into the kitchen of a chef like that who's got a fearsome reputation and you're a young female chef, presumably outnumbered in that kitchen? Yeah, I mean, it was um, it was a kitchen that was absolutely on fire at that time. It was the the sounds and the smells and the food was incredible. Um, the pace, the energy, the determination of the team, everyone wanted to work there. It was just the place to work. And it was like the SAS of kitchens. And I knew that if I was going to make it or I would give myself a very good chance if I could handle it working in that kitchen. And um, quite often I would be be very rarely would there ever be another female in that team. Um, women did come, but they left pretty quickly, most of them. And, and when they said that women wouldn't last, it was generally because they just didn't. Um, but it was, it was, I loved it. And I, I got a huge buzz out of it. It didn't take me very long to prove myself with the team and get accepted by them. And it was a, a fantastic place to work. Obviously it was military, you know, um, but, you know, Gordon was always fair and, and he always um, looked after me and, and, you know, gave me great advice from a young age and w- was a fantastic mentor. I mean, how do you actually go about proving yourself in that situation? I think being in the kitchen is very, uh, very evident if you're going to make it or not. You know, your skills are your skills. So you can see it straight away if a chef's good enough and they're up to speed. Um, so generally, I would always prove, prove myself within a week. Um, you know, it's funny saying that, but, you know, almost every top level kitchen that I walked into, they said that. I mean, in my job interviews, people would say, you know, what's your ambition? I would say, well, I want to be a, a chef at a very top level. Um, and they, one of them, I remember at 17, said to me, well, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but if you, if you work for me, you might do OK, but I'm going to put you on the pastry section. Um, because that's probably where you learn the most because you're going to leave anyway. And that was my job interview at 17 years old. So, I mean, I didn't go to work for that person. Um, but, you know, that was a one, one Michelin-starred chef. But, um, you know, I, I chose to go to work at Bendon, which was another fantastic restaurant. But I, do, did, I was aware at that time, you know, there was two more Michelin stars that, that could be earned and that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. Um, and I did think to myself, one day I will have your job or I will be better than you from 17 years old. So in a way, the negative 
comments like that did drive me. Um, I don't think that anyone should ever say that to a young person. I think that's awful thing to say. Um, but it did drive me. I could see that it, it would affect people in the wrong way also. You've said before that there was a lot of testosterone in the kitchens at that time. And it sounds like from what you're describing, that was absolutely the case in job interviews and actually at the coalface. I mean, how did you how did you deal with that? Did you feel like you had to act like one of the lads when you were at work? Um, I never really felt I had to necessarily act like one of the lads. But I think maybe when I took over my management style was more like um, like aggressive in terms of that's just what I grew up with. Um, and it took me years to to come out of that and really feel like I was good enough to run and manage a kitchen in my own way. I'm quite shy, um, naturally. Actually, it was Gordon that helped bring that out of me. But kitchens were always like that. It was very military and that's just the environment that we grew up in and everybody behaved the same. And it wasn't really until I kind of, I'd say I grew up a little bit and I realised that I could change things and I could do things differently and I could be myself, then I started to change the way I managed kitchens and transformed them, really. So you felt like in those early days you had to shout, essentially, to fit in with that macho kitchen culture? Very much so. And I think also because it was what was expected and, and being the first woman, for example... And people are really watching me or were watching me to see if I could cope, if I could do it. Um, But I think that today things have changed, thankfully, uh, a lot. Um, And kitchens are very different places now than than they were. You don't shout in your kitchen these days? No, um, (laughs) I don't um, at all. And yeah, we have quite a quiet. And I, I think you'll find that most kitchens now are very, very different to 10, 15 years ago. Do you think gender parity is is a reality in the kitchen or do you think it's going to take a long time for that to come? I think it, it's a reality, actually. And I think it's something we should aim for because our industry needs to move forward. It is moving forward, but it still needs to continue to move forward. And that's not just for, for women, but for men also. It's not conducive to family life. Um, and I do think that... You know, and it's not just for women, it's for men also. Women, you know, it's working the long hours, the late nights, but men shouldn't have to either. You know, we've got to move our industry forward to be more professional and come in line with other industries. Do you know any male chefs who have taken paternity leave? Uh, No, actually, I don't. (laughs) I don't. Um, And it is, it's a very demanding um, profession. And I do think that, yeah, we need to keep, keep evolving it and and have a good target to think, yes, it is possible. So in 2005, you left Gordon Ramsay briefly and went to work with Alan Ducasse. And in that same year, Gordon famously said, women can't cook to save their lives in an interview. Is that just coincidence that he said that in the same year you left his kitchen? Yeah, probably. Gordon, as you know, is uh, one for loving grabbing a headline. Um, and often says uh, controversial things for fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, having Gordon has been like, uh, people don't know it, but he's been the biggest and kindest mentor to me all the way through from uh, since the beginning. I mean, Gordon was my biggest supporter. He would take me outside and give me pep talks telling me he was going to teach me how to run the kitchen and saying, you know, Margaret Thatcher was a young woman one day 
also, and she was quite shy, but then she led the country. And so, you know, he would say things like that, but absolutely it's not the way that he thinks or behaves. Um, and ultimately the first uh, woman in Britain to run a three Michelin star restaurant came through his kitchen. Um, yeah, he's incredibly fair and is actually a, a great leader. And that's why people work for him for so many years. So you became head chef at his restaurant and you were then the gatekeeper of his three Michelin stars. What did that feel like? Were you petrified of losing one? Yeah, it was huge, huge amount of pressure. I remember um, the, the media surrounding that was, was massive when that broke. And I remember Gordon coming into the kitchen and saying to me, God, what have you done today? You've had more press than the prime minister. Um, and actually, like the Sun newspaper turned up to my parents' house and just things happened that I just wasn't aware of at all. And it put so much pressure on me. Now, I hadn't really thought about being a female chef at all in my career. It just was about being the best that I could. So I was singled out. And then I thought, you know, what if I'm the first woman to lose the third star and also maybe prove everyone that maybe women aren't strong enough. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. And it was maybe it was unnecessary pressure because the world, the eyes of the world were on me. Um, and restaurant Gordon Ramsay was one of the most famous restaurants in the world. So in 2017, you opened your eponymous restaurant in London's Notting Hill, Core by Claire Smith. How did that feel to have your name in lights? And why did you decide to put your name in the title? It was really, uh, yeah, Core was meaning heart. You know, in many languages, it translates to heart and the seed and the centre of something. And so it was my, my heart and soul. And um, you know, backing myself to open a restaurant with my own ideas of what a modern day fine dining restaurant would be and and challenging some of the other things that people weren't liking about fine dining anymore in, in Britain. It was a huge risk also because of my reputation. You know, I was considered a three Michelin starred chef already. I had a great reputation of running one of the best restaurants in the world. Um, and now I was taking a huge leap of faith um, to uh, back myself really and start off with a completely uh, a new concept um, but obviously I took that step um, and yeah and here we are we started off quite modest and quite quite humbly and then just continued to reinvest in the business and I was surprised pleasantly by the following that I had that I didn't realize that I had um, in terms of, of customers and I didn't realize that I wondered if people would come when we opened everyone we were fully booked from day one and and people wanted to support and that was a really nice surprise for me was putting your name in lights called by claire smith part of backing yourself uh yes yeah i think so um i do remember gordon saying to me once that he could change the name of his restaurant and put mine on it if i wanted but i thought why would i do that <laughs> he's a pretty big draw um but yes putting putting my name on the door um backing myself was that step. I, re I really wanted to do it. It was the last challenge for me. Was Well, not the last one, but certainly the biggest one to say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to do this in my own name now. How nerve-wracking is that to make that switch from apprentice to master? Well, it's risking it's risking everything. So it could have gone from, from you know, hero of having a great reputation. I was a, a partner in a fantastic restaurant and, you know, it, it was a big, big step to just take it hero to zero, start from scratch um, with a new team. 
and build something up as a different concept. So it was a huge risk. So in 2018, you catered the wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. Good wedding food, you remember, right? It, it makes or breaks the day, or certainly for somebody as greedy as me. And theirs was arguably the most talked about wedding in recent memory. How do you cope with that sort of pressure? Uh, yeah, again, big, big day for us. Um, the team at CORE were just um, loving it. Um, and they were, I mean, it was a huge, huge event um, that we felt all very privileged to be a part of. I mean, they're lovely, you know, they, they're both really lovely, really lovely people, but that's huge amounts of pressure to, to deliver something like that. And also just in, in the, in the timings, I mean, it was, it had to run like a military precision as everything on the day had to, because there were so many people involved, involved in it, but it's something that the team, you know, I will certainly remember for our whole lives. And I think everyone remembers that day as being a fairy tale day. And it was, it was like a fairy tale. I mean, the weather was perfect. That you know, when the country comes together, and um, you could hear everyone cheering in Windsor, um, and it was just such a nice thing to be a part of. Was the food perfect? Were you happy with what you served? Pretty happy with it, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was it was well practiced um, and well rehearsed to get to that day. I think you can compare those kind of things to to Formula One pit lanes. I mean, they absolutely need to run. 100%. If it goes wrong, it goes very wrong. Um, but that's all into the, the training and the training that has got that's gone on before it. I mean, every event of that kind of size, there's a huge amount of, of development that goes into to those days. I mean, working in a kitchen is physically and mentally exhausting. Does that take a toll on your general well-being? It's, it's typically long hours. I think, you know, uh, um, I'm more of the creative side now. So I, I run the business, I, I operate the business and um, I create the dishes. I have a development chef. Um, I have a head chef who runs the kitchen every day. So I guess it's not necessarily that I'm chopping onions anymore. Sometimes I think, oh, I'd love to be chopping onions because I miss it. Um, but there's just not the same and it's not the best use of my time. I have a brilliant uh, team of young people that are coming up through the ranks in the same way that, that I did, who are gaining those skills now. So it's not necessarily physical so much anymore. Um, it's more uh, mental. And, and I think we all grow up and evolve differently. But I do spend a lot of my time running the business and, and sort of driving that forward. I did read that your routine when the restaurant's open is, I think you use the word obsessive. I mean, is that how you approach your career it, in your whole life is obsessive a word you would use to describe yourself? I think in my career, definitely. In my personal life, no. Um, I'm pretty easygoing in my personal life. Um, but at work, I am very much, I, I like to do every service. So I, I'm always here till the last main course, the last plate of food gets served. I like to, I check every single thing that leaves, leaves the kitchen. Um, and I just have that I know that attention to detail, I, it's what it's required to be at a very top level. Um, and it, it's just, it's second nature to me. I, I look at everything, I check everything, I see everything. I make question it, question everything all the time around me. Um, but again, it's something that I've just been trained to do. So what does the future hold? You've got three Michelin stars. We haven't seen a huge amount of you on television, for instance. Is that something that you would be like, like to explore? Not uh, at this moment in time, 
Um, I'm not saying that never will happen in the future, but it's not in my uh, plans and it, it's not really my character. I think that um, I've got a lot more to focus on and, and achieve in, in the kitchen um, and opening new restaurants. Um, and as a businesswoman, I really enjoy operating business and being entrepreneurial. Television, maybe it's my shy nature, but it's it's not something that I feel that I'd be particularly natural at. Um, I feel my my skills are, are better used elsewhere. And it's what I'm passionate about. So I think definitely looking at product lines and, and opening further restaurants. We are opening a restaurant in, in the next few months in Sydney, Australia, but potentially after that, um, back here in London in the next couple of years. Thank you so much to this week's imposter, Claire Smith. Bit gutted that I wasn't able to interview her over a three Michelin star meal, but hey, that's lockdown for you. And my fellow imposters, we've come to the end of this series. If you've enjoyed listening and you'd like to rate us five stars and leave a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps other people find the show. And it gives my imposter syndrome the validation it needs. And if you're now twiddling your thumbs and you'd like to discover loads more quality content from The Telegraph, you can visit telegraph.co.uk forward slash imposters and get yourself a free 30-day trial. And if you've missed any episodes, what are you doing? Priyanka Chopra Jonas, Samantha Cameron, June Sarpong and many more are waiting to tell you how they kicked their imposter syndrome. That's all from me for now. Goodbye. Imposters was produced by Maddie Hickish and Theodora Leloudis. Sound mixing was by Elliot Lampett and it was a Listen Entertainment production for The Telegraph.